You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Hey, Live Different Podcast listeners, are you looking to get out of your comfort zone? Put the things that we talk about on the Live Different Podcast into practice. If so, come and check out Under 30 Experiences and Travel the World. Under 30 Experiences is open to ages 21 to 35. Come down and visit me in the jungle of Costa Rica. Go and explore Mayan ruins in Mexico and Belize. Hike the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Go to street parties in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Come to see the historical colonial city of Cartagena, Colombia. Drink wine in France. Go down to Barcelona. Uh, Why not check out Ireland and Scotland and London Glacier Walk in Iceland. We go all over the place. Bali, Indonesia. I can't remember where else we go, but there are amazing places for you to check out, and I suggest that you do. I'm the co-founder of Under 30 Experiences, and if you put in the code Live Different upon checkout, you'll get $100 off. So go to under30experiences.com, get out of your comfort zone, travel to a faraway land, and meet new people. What's up, guys? It's Matt Wilson with the Live Different Podcast, and today I am here with our very special guest, Colin Wright from Exile Lifestyle. Colin and I decided just to start recording, skip the chip-chat in the beginning because we started, (laughs) and it got interesting, and we're like, well, I thought, shit, people should start to hear this. So, Colin, you are in Kansas. You have been all over the world for the last... I don't know, I want to call it 10, 10 years, maybe eight years you've been traveling internationally and, and writing books, and now you've got a podcast, and uh, you cover things like nuclear diplomacy. Uh, you are a hardcore minimalist, or at least you were at one point during your blogging, blogging career. I'm just pumped to catch up and talk. Uh, we share a very special place. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that. I wanted to talk about Iceland. Iceland. <laughs> we share a special place. I guess we share Iceland along with 330,000 Icelanders. What's up, man? How are you? I, I'm fantastic, man. That was a hell of an intro. That's... <laughs> Hard to follow something like that. But I mean, yeah, I, I think we do we do share Iceland, and yeah, I've been traveling for like seven and a half years, something like that. So your guess was pretty close. Wow, wow, yeah, I uh, that was that was right off the cuff, obviously. And uh, but you know, you're someone whose work I've admired for a while, uh, ever since actually. We launched under30co.com in late 2008, really into 2009, uh, was when I reached out to you, I remember, and I said, well, you're one of the only young people out there who has a really good blog. There you are. Colin, I lost you. I did something silly. I have the hotspot shield here in Costa Rica protecting my IP and I said, uh, I've got the free version. Sometimes when I really use bandwidth, I use it all up. So I don't want that to happen. And of course I lost <laughs> it and we lost you. So what the hell are you doing in Kansas is what I wanted to know out of all places in the world. Well, for, for one, I, I'm enjoying the excellent internet coverage, uh, enjoying for the first time in seven years having consistent internet, which is nice. Excellent. Uh, but above and beyond that, I, I found myself, gosh, it would have been six months ago, something like that. Uh, I was at a premiere for uh, my buddies, Josh and Ryan at The Minimalist, had a movie coming out. And I was at the premiere out in one of the premieres, New York or Boston or something. And one of my readers came up to me afterwards and said, you know, what's the most exotic place you've ever been? And I jokingly said, Wichita, Kansas. Uh, because in a way it was like, I, I had come here when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11. And the only thing to do at the time was to like go to Walmart, buy ammo and go into a field and shoot at bottles. Like that was the height of entertainment. And for me, that was just so radically different from everything that I'd ever experienced. And still to this day continues to be a radically different experience. And I was at a turning point too, where I had a couple of projects, some video projects for YouTube, and then my podcast, Let's Know Things, that I was really enjoying working on, but they were just 
so crazy to try to produce from the road. And I really needed a continuous space where I could keep my equipment and that I could, you know, put up some sound dampening equipment and things like that. Uh, and so I was looking at options and thinking that maybe I would change things up a little bit and try something different. And this idea came into my head that like, you should just go to Kansas. This is when Trump had just entered the election, more or less. And like, there was a lot of craziness going on in the Midwest and in the South. And I thought, what more interesting place to watch this all happen from than from a place that is incredibly exotic to me. So it might as well be a foreign country to me and my experiences. But it's also a place where there's a lot being churned up right now. And so there could be some really interesting conversations to have. Oh, my God. Colin, you are a brave man. Colin, would it surprise you if I told you I had an ex-girlfriend in Wichita, Kansas? <laughs> you know, it wouldn't now. Before coming here, it would have. But there are like, there's like 350,000 people here. It's a pretty decent-sized city for the Midwest and, so it, uh, and, and several universities and stuff. So now I'm not surprised, but I would have been surprised if you would have told me that six months ago. Uh, I I don't even know what to say about that whole situation. I will have to uh, I will have to chat with you offline about that one. But I've had some interesting experiences there. It's a um, that's crazy. You are brave. You are a brave man. I'll tell you that, especially along election season. And uh, will you tell will you tell me a little bit more about Iceland? And, and Colin, ex excuse me, we have a, a, our nice housekeeper is here in Costa Rica, and she, she had a question for me. Sí, dígame. No, la muchacha. Oh, hay una muchacha aquí. Oh, la de la par, que eh, va para Café Milagro. Oh, ella, ella fue a Café Milagro. Okay, muchas gracias. Muy amable. Oh, my God. Um, so, anyway, always exciting here doing a podcast uh, in Costa Rica. Somebody knocking on the door and uh, that was Marion, our staffer for Under 30 Experiences to tell me that she was headed out to, uh, to get a nice cappuccino at Café Milagro uh, here in Costa Rica. So tell me, tell me about Iceland. Oh, Iceland. Iceland is a place I've gone back to and lived in, gosh, three times now um, for durations ranging between four and I want to say six or seven months. Uh, don't tell anybody. I, it wasn't to stay that long, but I did. Uh, and so the first time I went, it was a completely foreign place. Hadn't been there before. I had no idea what to expect. My readers voted for me to go. And then the second and third times I went for the uh, winter and summer solstice, respectively, and was living with my girlfriend, who was a local there. And so we played house for a bit. Uh, another way of like changing up my more typical, which has become my typical travel routine over the past seven years of, of moving to a new country every four months, my readers voting on where I go, is that I'd choose other adventures in between. And in some cases, those adventures would be domestic type adventures where I go and, you know, my, my girlfriend at the time, we live together, we play house, we do that, because I want to make sure that I'm exposing myself to different things. Uh, and, and Iceland, of course, is a lovely place to live, whether you're going for a couple of days or whether you're going for six months. That's awesome. I, I couldn't agree more with my love for Iceland. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful place, whether you are in the city of Reykjavik. I mean, a city of uh, 250,000 people, I would say. About two-thirds of the population live uh, in the city. And then the backcountry, I mean, that's, that's what keeps me going there, of course. But to be in the city, although it is a very expensive place, especially nowadays uh, with the, their currency strengthening, I mean, the design of the entire city is, is beautiful. I mean, the design of the buildings and, and Scandinavia is really into design, as I know you are a, uh, a web designer by trade yourself. I'm not sure if you're, if you're uh, still taking on projects, but I mean, it, it's, it's an inspiring place to be for on, on all accounts, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. Aesthetically, it's gorgeous. And just socially, too. The society is a really, it's a really chilled out place, very egalitarian, um, just, just a lot of very, I, I guess in the United States, people would call them very liberal values, but to me, they're just egalitarian. It's a, it's a lot of equality, a lot of kind of you do you, a lot of very logical, practical decisions being made. And then a whole lot of, uh, popular uprising anytime a decision is made that is not popular, which to me is a, a 
strength uh, if you're living within a democracy. So it, there's a lot to love there. That then combined with the fact that it's also incredibly within Reykjavik, very metropolitan, but then within Reykjavik and then also immediately outside, you can also get a lot of very backcountry charm where people living in, in more traditional ways and doing a lot of traditional things with traditional crafts and such. Yeah, that that's really cool. And the, the political climate sense 2007 has just been so interesting. Actually, I love the expression. Uh, I, I'm sh I'm sure you know it, but uh, people Icelanders will say, "Oh, that's so 2007 when their <laughs> when their uh, economy was booming." And uh, as as one Icelander told me, it seemed like every Icelander at birth was given a given a Range Rover and uh, uh -huh. you know they built Harpa their 10 million dollar uh, 10 million it could, it could have been 50 million dollars for forgive me for not remembering the number but just this massive concert hall and conference sinking. venue it's sinking really yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. That's uh, unfortunately structurally, oh like it's a beautiful God. space. Sure, but it it is sinking a little bit each year. But yeah, they went to build this. Uh, I think it was fifty million dollars that they put into this place, and then the economy collapsed. And they said, "Well, what the hell should we do with this? It's half built." And some people wanted to leave it as a, uh, as a you know, memory, I guess. Uh, I feel like my English is just getting more and more poor. Not for some, not good for somebody who is, uh, who, who does a podcast professionally, but yeah, they tried to just leave it there. Some people wanted to just leave it there just to, to show, Hey, we can never have 2007 happen again because this is what happens. Now we have $15 million into a project and it's just going to sit there <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it's an incredible place, especially politically impeaching their prime minister and the, the protests in Iceland are always cool to see on, on the news. Um, there, Yeah, there's just so much to the place. And this is a country who took uh, the their constitution and they decided they wanted to rewrite it and selected basically at random, I think you had to apply, if you were a citizen, you could go and rewrite the, the Constitution. It was just anybody could sign up to, to help be a part of this, this super democracy. And, uh, you know, it, it was very forward thinking. As I understand, there were parts of it where uh, that actually said, oh, uh, this is what we do about stem cell research and clones in the future. And it was an, an internet democracy, of course, is another big issue there. So what a, what a cool place to, to go. And it sounds like you, you probably know a lot about the, those issues yourself. Yeah, I was very fortunate to check it out and, and in the time when I was there. The, the three times that I've lived there were all post-2007, the first time, just a couple of years after that. So people were still kind of reeling from that dramatic change where it, it was, you know, everybody was born with a Range Rover. Everybody had two or three houses. They had never invented coupons. They just never needed it. You know, it wasn't <laughs> something that they had in the country. Uh, and then suddenly a lot of people lost all of their savings. And they, I think it, it was a smart move. They allowed the banks to collapse rather than bailing them out. Uh, once Jan Nahr became the mayor of Reykjavik, he sent bounty hunters after some of the bankers who fled to London after destroying the economy, which was a smart move too. Uh, put them in prison rather than letting them escape the way that we allowed our bankers in the US to escape. Uh, but I saw some advertisements from before that time that people showed me uh, off and on, and it really was, they were advertising on billboards, like, hey, take out another loan. Take out a loan for $300 jeans. Why not, you know? The economy's great. What could possibly go wrong? And that was like days before everything collapsed. And they did this because the more loans people took out, the more bankers were able to escape with. And they knew that things were collapsing, but they kept encouraging people to do it. That's insane. That it's just crazy to, to hear things like that. And a bailout for Iceland, you know, would not in the grand scheme of things was nothing, nothing, nothing even close to the amount of money that that we put in. Of course, it's all relative uh, for our own, you know, bailout in the United States, but. It could have easily been, but they could have easily been bailed out. They could have kept Iceland afloat, as I understand it. I don't know how many. I think it was maybe a few hundred million 
dollars, which sounds like a lot of money, or maybe I'm maybe I'm underestimating it a little bit. But it wasn't like it, it wasn't like a trillion dollars or, or whatever they say was the total cost of our own bailout. Yeah, I think what they were trying to do though was ensure that they didn't reward the systems that caused such a horrible problem. And so they, they didn't not bail it out because it would cost a great deal of money, but they did it because they didn't want to. Like, like in the U.S. when they bailed it out, all of these bankers who caused these problems and did these bad things very knowingly and destroyed the economy, they were rewarded for it. And in Iceland, they were trying to do something different. They were trying to make sure that those people were replaced and that the structures they had built was burnt to the ground so that they could build something better. Absolutely. And I completely agree. I completely, completely agree with uh, with that decision. So that's that's awesome. Uh, Colin, so I, I want to bounce around a little bit just because I think there's so many interesting things uh, that we could talk about today. And uh, I want to go at a, di- a few different angles and I think our listeners would be really interested. One of the things I wanted to pick your brain on a little bit was minimalism. I went to your blog and the very first thing that I saw uh, published just a few days ago, the first one, two, three, four, five words in that blog post are possessions can make us happier. I would Mm -hmm. love if you could elaborate a little bit on what you're thinking (laughs) there because you were part of a very interesting project. Your two buddies who you you mentioned, the minimalists, Uh, I'm a hardcore minimalist myself. I'm getting more used to being in Costa Rica now for a few years' time and accumulating more things as it happens. But uh, tell me about minimalism in your take. Yeah. Well, so so minimalism is it's often misunderstood, unfortunately. And it's misunderstood to uh, in the implication that it means just owning as little as possible, that you should own as little as possible. And if you own fewer things, you are more philosophically noble than somebody else or something like that. And that's bullshit. That completely misunderstands the concept of it. Uh, minimalism is focusing on what's important so that you can uh, you understand what's important. And then you can spend more of your time, energy, and resources, including money, on that important stuff. And you do that by excluding the less important stuff. And so you, you can't do that unless you know what's important first. But it's also then a matter of just focusing. And so what I usually tell people is, like, if unicorn statuettes make you happier than anything else in the world, you should buy the best collection of unicorn statuettes you can find because that is your thing. That's what makes you happier than anything else. Just make sure that you know that that's what makes you happy. And then don't buy the big screen TV. Buy more unicorn statuettes. For me, um, experiences tend to provide a whole lot more value than possessions. And so for for seven and a half years, I traveled with what I could carry in my my carry-on luggage, my carry-on bag, and my laptop bag. And so I I was kept to a very small footprint in terms of possessions. Uh, The the same is true now. I'm I'm looking around my flat here in Wichita, and I have – I think what I've added to what I carried in my bag is a bookcase – a chair, a rocking chair, a desk, and my podcasting microphone and my guitar. Um, not much beyond that. I mean, I have appliances now because I've been learning to cook, among other things here, things that I've been putting off for years. But but that's the thing. Like, your priorities can change. And for me, having some things that allow me to learn to cook is very important and it doesn't diminish my experience to have, you know, a couple of cast iron pots and a spatula. It actually increases and uh, amplifies my positive experience and allows me to achieve what I actually want to achieve. And so what I was saying with that post is that, like, if you get the right things, if you have the right things and ideally only the right things, nothing that's superfluous, then those things are immensely valuable. And that's how things should be for us. They should add to our experience. They shouldn't subtract. They shouldn't distract us from the actual important things in our life. I I couldn't agree more. And I want to talk to you about something. Uh, As a minimalist, right, I often feel guilty when I acquire new things. And, (laughs) yeah, I've lived now in the same apartment for 15 months. Uh, I often pack up and have absolutely no problem 
pouring stuff, putting stuff into my backpack and just going. And I never check a bag, so I'm not carrying much. And, uh, you know, but I do often start to feel guilty. And, I, you know, I went for probably five years without a car. So, <laughs> I got Chip Shirley is, uh, is asking me another question here, but I got to tell you this story, Colin. Sí, Shirley. Listo. Listo, okay, sí. Uh, bueno. Sí, aquí tiene y necesitas las llaves a salir. Sí, okay. Estoy en el teléfono, pero puedo darte las llaves. Y Colin, sorry, man. Uh, puedo darte las llaves. Housekeeper needs. Okay, eso es tuyo. <laughs> Sorry, dude, I didn't think she was done. Um, but I bought a, tr I brought, bought a truck, and uh, I love it. It makes me so happy. So, Colin, after another quick interruption, uh, we do <laughs> apologize, but uh, this is a professional show. I want you to know, maybe not as polished as, <laughs> as yours is, and I think that you're a lot more articulate and well-spoken in the English language than I am, but we will persevere. Colin, I was telling you that I didn't have a truck for four or five years. I lived in New York. I went traveling, lived in Costa Rica. I got to tell you what happened. Costa Rica is so much better with a vehicle. I can get to the secret beaches. I can get to the waterfalls. I don't have to walk or to hitchhiker take collectivo like I always did. I wore it like a badge <laughs> of honor. I really was stubborn and, uh, you know, and it was nice to save the environment and nice to, you know, because I totally saved it myself. Uh, it was, and it was nice to, to save the money. And then Colin, it got worse. You know what happened after that? I, not only did I buy a vehicle and one that I really liked and I got a good deal on it and blah, blah, blah. Then I bought new tires, all terrains. I'm talking <laughs> Firestone, I don't even remember, like, but the badass all-terrain tires that I wanted, and I got a great deal on those. And I don't know if it's just the deal that made me so happy. Probably that has a lot to do with it. But every time I look at the tires, I'm like, that truck looks fucking awesome. And the great thing is that it performs on the road, off the road, and this possession is making me happy, right? And I feel bad about it. Talk me off the cliff because this is against <laughs> my values, Colin. No, you shouldn't feel bad about that at all. It sounds like you're getting an immense amount of value. That's exactly what money is for. That's what you should be spending your money on is things that add value to your life. The problem is if you get something and then it just sits there and gathers dust. And uh, to me, like I always picture, and I still do this, like if I feel that feeling about something, then I, I take a look at it and I'll just like, sit there maybe like, so I have to look at it all the time and make a decision about it. And I feel like Pharaoh in his tomb, like burying himself with all his riches. Like if somebody else could use this thing that I am not using, then I get rid of it like immediately. It's a really great heuristic because then I think, well, somebody else, I'm adding value to the world because someone else, for someone else, this is their thing. This is their truck with all-terrain vehicle, uh, all-terrain tires, right? And uh, But it's not for me and it's just sitting there not giving value to anyone. So if you're feeling that, then it's then it's maybe time to get rid of it. But if you're feeling what you're feeling, that's exactly what you should be spending money on. That is minimalism. Huh, okay, I, I really like that. I'm looking around my apartment right now and I'm saying, what? The television actually, it's unplugged, but I do plug it in to watch sports sometimes. Some cable comes with the place, uh, and also the TV is not mine, so I'm not going to get rid of the uh, semi-furnished apartment with television, and I'm not going to get rid of the TV, but uh, that's probably the only thing that I see. Everything else is really practical, um, mm. and that's good. Like that rocking chair that you've got. I got a rocking chair, too. It came with the place, but it's oh, on I the front porch. I love rocking chairs. So great. Yeah. That's uh, that's awesome. That that's awesome. And um, well, I'm, I'm good to hear that I'm not crazy with minimalism, and I'm a firm believer that stuff, you know, a, a busy uh, when your mind is busy, oftentimes you can look around and you're gonna say, well, there's a lot of clutter in my life right now. Messy, messy desk, messy mind, messy desk, messy or messy room messy mind and uh, I just am so much more productive in a nice 
clean space and it's gotten almost, I don't want to say I'm OCD, right? But, and sometimes I think like, all right, dude, maybe just leave the dishes in the sink because that will help you feel better and, and really break out of your super disciplined life that I, that I subscribe to. But um, mm. it, it's, I feel like it's gotten a little worse, right? Not to judge my behavior pattern here, but it, it's gotten a little worse, I would say. But also since uh, my yoga and meditation practice has gotten much more advanced, any clutter that I find around bothers me more. Noises bother me a lot more. I feel like I really want to be in, in nature and things like air conditioning, humming in the background really bothers me. Or, or this is this is when I really think I'm kind of going crazy is my refrigerator running bothers me. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I really, I think all of that has to do with minimalism because I like to have minimal amount of thoughts and bullshit going on in my head and if I feel this, uh, hear the same thoughts popping up like oh da da da, da. Uh, I don't know so one that people would have often would be looking in the mirror and criticizing themselves well that's no way to live your life to hear that all the time so I try to really get minimalistic uh, in my thought patterns also can you agree with me at all here do you have any practices uh, in, in that regard to that come to your mind yeah, I mean, I, I think that is true. I think it it's the same idea, uh, the same way like minimalism is applied to architecture, for example. It's the uh, focusing on the important stuff, the structural stuff, and that is what's beautiful about it. And so focusing on the same thing within yourself, focusing on the things that that are structural to you, whatever that happens to mean, and it'll be different for everybody, I think is a really good way to, to approach kind of personal development and becoming a better version of yourself. Uh, that said, I, although it is like really wonderful, I totally agree with you in that once you start paying attention and really focusing and monotasking a little bit more, that little things that didn't bug you before start to bug you, I, I would also argue that it's important sometimes to be sure that you still can expose yourself to those things and then deal with it because a life without any friction at all is not one where you're you're kind of incentivized to grow, whereas a life where you're able to structure certain things and then grow in that particular direction, uh, there's a different type of growth, I think, that comes from being challenged. And that's something, I, I'm sure that you uh, know this, that like travel, that's one of the big selling points of it is that it's uncomfortable to a certain degree, but uncomfortable in a way that makes you grow. And so to me, removing completely all friction from one's life would also be kind of a negative thing because then life would be so easy that you'd become very frail. Whereas if you are able to grow uh, by, by building a life that is more optimized for yourself while also making sure that you are capable of coping with the real world and your, your refrigerator noises uh, you know, in a healthy way, then I think you're getting the best of both worlds. I have been thinking about this concept a lot. I'm really glad that you brought this up. And I recently heard a pretty cool analogy uh, so uh, all the stuff that I spend my time working on, aside from my business, is biohacking stuff and my meditation practice and optimizing my body and the environment around me. And uh, I used to really have issues, right, when I would go back to New York and I would get reverse culture shock and I would be like, oh my God, it's so noisy here, I can't, I can't cope. Right? But I heard a, a really interesting analogy recently, and it said, well, don't build, when you're thinking about building yourself, don't build this super high-performance Porsche, right, who, if you get a scratch on it, you're going to break down and cry, or if it rains a little <laughs> bit, you need to put it in the garage, or if, it, uh, if the conditions aren't just perfect if it's below 45 degrees so we can't take it out because there's a chance of snow and we wouldn't want to give any salt on it they said don't build that car so don't build that life and um, I heard Wim Hof the Iceman whose Wim Hof method I do his breathing method and his cold thermogenesis it's supposed to help your your immune system and your you just calm your your mind and, and do all these amazing 
things. I've seen a lot of benefits from it. But he said, you know, he said, oh, yeah, I can be anywhere. He's like, sure, I find my peace and quiet under the ice where he holds his breath for like five minutes and goes down there and is just in this complete meditative form and all this. But he said, before I was the ice man, I used to go to the busiest, noisiest intersections in a big city and I'd do my meditation practice there. And he said, that wouldn't bother me at all. So, you know, he <laughs> built himself a, a Hummer. You know what I mean? Yeah, He's, yeah. Uh, durable. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I really like how you, how you brought that up. Yeah, it's an important thing. Unfortunately, too, it's often left out of that type of discussion because I, I do think that it's good to try to, like, optimize things, to try to get the most that you can out of whatever you find to be valuable. But I think we optimize too much in one direction, and we build the sports car when that unfortunately then puts us in a position that if we ever need to do driving off of something like the Audubon, then we're absolutely screwed. And you see this with people's diets a lot, too, where it's miraculous that we can have the type of diets that we have today in, in the developed world in particular. But then if you want to travel and if you want to eat street food in India, you are screwed because your system has not been exposed to the elements. It hasn't been exposed to anything except the most ultimately purified bits of, of whole food dumb uh, for years. And I think that's great when you can give yourself that. But I think it's also important to expose yourself to uh, to those frictions in, in whatever aspect of life you happen to be talking about. Man, I, I could not agree more. And you'll be so proud of me. You know what I did this morning? I had a half I had a half a piece of toast and I so proud of you. loved it. It was so delicious. It would it was smeared probably with some margarine from a little Costa Rican place and I said this came with toast and I said, "You know what? I'm not trying to make myself allergic to gluten. I don't want to be a celiac one day, right? But I choose not to eat it. Uh, I, I choose not to spike my insulin levels. And I, I you know, I, I really uh, am trying to avoid neurodegenerative disease, which runs in my family. And so I'm doing my best, but I don't want to make it where I go to, you know, an Italian buddy's house and, and all of a sudden I can't eat his pasta. I mean, that right. would just be a shame. Yeah. That, that, to me, has always been one of the biggest uh, arguments against ever labeling myself. Like, I, yes. if I were to use a label, I, I probably eat, like, 85 or 90 percent vegetarian. But I don't ever want to label myself that way because then in those moments when – I like to use India as another example. If I would have gone to a friend's house and they – that family prepared meat, that is a huge honor. That is a big sign of respect. And they spent a great deal of money in proportion to what they make for that food. And to be that guy who says, I don't eat meat, when they've gone and done this thing that they would have no reason to believe that you can eat it, like that to me would be missing out on such an important facet of life. And I, I totally understand the philosophical underpinnings of a lot of these different choices that people make. But I also think that we limit ourselves so frequently in taking on these these different lifestyle choices. And ideally, any lifestyle choice that we take on provides nothing nothing but benefit. And to me, that usually means that you, you go into it like 85 or 90 percent while avoiding that whole, uh, you know, just covering yourself with labels and saying, now I'm part of this group and that defines me. Exactly. And then you run into so much dogma and you're not making the decision on your own, you're just say, you're just going about it, following it like a religion. I'm not a huge fan yeah. of organized religion because that just means you're following something out of a book rather than having your your own experience. And uh, well, you're having someone, even if it's not a book, having someone else make your decisions for you and having someone else apply a one-size-fits-all solution to your problems, which is almost never the way to find a correct use-sized solution for a use-sized problem. I couldn't agree more. I have one, one more little diet-related uh, comment here, an observation about myself. And I used to be able to drink. I could drink with the best of them. And da, 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 da. Well, I choose not to do that anymore. But you know what sucks, Colin? When I go out and I have two beers and I feel hungover the next morning, it's so <laughs> sad and pathetic. And I'm talking 
to imp Imperiales, like the cheapest Costa Rican, just maybe that's my problem. But now it's just like a light, it's like <laughs> it's having two Bud Lights, right? And then yeah. feeling bad in the morning. And it's not that I feel bad, right? But it's the, it's the sports car saying, oh, you didn't put 90, super duper 94 in me. I think this is 91 this morning. And I might only be feeling 91% instead of 94%, but that's a difference for me. And uh, I do, that is regrettable at times for me. I will, I will tell you that. I, I need to loosen up sometimes <laughs> in that regard. It's you know, something that I found, and this, this may be one of those things that's disproven next year when they have a new round of studies about this. But I read a couple of years ago that this was something that was supposed to work, and it, it's proven uh, pretty useful for me, is that, uh, like, in addition to just staying hydrated and stuff as you're drinking, because I, I don't drink much anymore either, and I, I definitely am a two-beer person, and that's that's my cutoff these days. But I never get hungover because I stay up a little later. And apparently your liver function goes down significantly when you're sleeping. And so if you stay up for like an hour or an hour and a half longer than you typically would after you go out drinking, then your liver has a chance to process more of that alcohol before you go to sleep. And as a result, the consequences are not so bad in the morning. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I've, I've heard that, but not as related to the liver. I always think of it as sleep cycles. So when you drink and then you just pass out cold, I actually, I used to, when I did drink, I would monitor my sleep cycles. Uh, and not only when I drank, but <laughs> during the phase of my life where I did consume much more alcohol, I would just see... I looked like I just flatlined when I went to bed. It was like <laughs> 3 a.m., boom, face down. And you know when you wake up face down at 7 and you roll over and you look at your sleep cycles and you're like, wait a second. I did not get that REM sleep. I did not get that deep sleep. So, yeah, I totally I totally hear you on, on that, Colin. That, that's, that's cool. That's a... Uh, that's a, a cool citation there with the with the liver. Um, Colin, I wanted to change gears a little bit and talk to you about, well, ask you, how the hell do you write so many books? This, uh, I'm looking, <laughs> and I've, I've read a couple of yours, uh, including one that I really liked, especially when I first started traveling, Iceland, India, Interstate. But now I'm looking, I'm like, oh, I wonder what else Colin has come out with lately. And I was, I'm just blown away. How do you do it? It, it actually, it kind of goes back to the minimalism thing in a way that I have made sure to structure my life in such a way that I'm prioritizing time and making sure that I have pretty much 24 hours a day to spend however I like every day. And if you do that long enough and then you get used to the rhythm of it and realize, okay, it's up to you. No one else is going to tell you how to fill your time. What do you want to do with that time more than anything else? Then you end up in some really interesting places. And for me, I just love the hell out of writing. And I, I would be writing whether or not I was getting paid for it. A lot of the writing that I put out there, I do not get paid for all the blogging and newsletters and so on. Probably 90% of what I do, I don't make a cent off of. And I continue to do it because I love it. And yeah, so the, the books are kind of a natural extension of that, I think, that if you have something you want to produce, uh, then one, if you do it enough, you get better and better at it in terms of systems and knowing what the process looks like and knowing what your own rhythm looks like for that type of project. But also you can just really throw yourself into it and spend a ridiculous amount of time in a sitting, uh, just writing. And when you're in the zone, you stay in the zone until you're done with it. You don't have anything else interrupting you. And so that, those, that confluence of things has really made writing, uh, not just a pleasure, but also something that I've been able to do a whole lot these last seven years. That's, that's excellent. And a lot of people listening probably right now are aspiring writers and you talked about your system that works for you and this may not work for everybody listening <laughs> but could you shed a little bit of light or, or even if you don't tell us exactly what you do do you have some advice for people trying to get in the zone and be able to have their quiet time to hammer out their work yeah yeah the the big thing that i try to share as often as possible because it's a problem that I see so frequently. It's almost a surprise when I don't see it. Uh, 
is that people romanticize writing and they, they hold it up as this like golden beacon of, of creative accomplishment. And they then turn it into something that they freak out about and they need to do it perfectly and they need to get in the right mindset and they need to have the structure upright and they need to get into the writing community and they need to do this and this. And there's a great deal of paralysis by analysis where they sit back and think about and talk about writing and never actually get around to writing. And I can understand why, like, it, it seems like this big intimidating thing, but you really have to kind of break it apart and not hold it up as this be all end all thing. And it, that's especially if you love it, it has to be something that you can almost feel is like a common everyday uh, routine or habit or chore even. And if you can do that, then you can sit and do it. You have 10 minutes to spare. You will sit down and do 10 minutes of writing. And if you have 16 hours to spare, you will sit down and do 16 hours of writing. But if you overthink it and if you get like really crazy about it, and if you get into the writing community and talk about writing and, you know, celebrate writing and everything, but never actually get around to writing. Well, you're never going to write. You're never going to finish a book. You're never even going to start it. Chances are. And that to me, from what I've seen and just from talking to people seems to be the biggest hurdle is that people who are aspiring writers do not write enough. And ideally, before you get into that whole cycle of thinking about what you're going to title your first book and what the cover is going to look like and getting into the writer's circuit and talking to a bunch of other writers, sit down and write, like write thousands of words every day and do that for a couple of years and then start to think about that other stuff. And it may not take that long, and it may be that you can work that other stuff in healthily along with your writing habit. But if you don't have that habit, you're kind of setting yourself up to stagnate before you even get started. That's awesome. Are you a fan of Stephen Pressfield's War of Art? I read it a long time ago, so I, I remember enjoying it, but I don't think I remember too many specifics. Okay, well, if anybody gets the chance, I would suggest the audiobook. It's Stephen Pressfield, and it's called The War of Art. And just put your headphones in, and he basically, well, he doesn't read the book aloud in his audiobook, but he has someone really good do it, and it's just basically uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, no-nonsense advice to stop resisting and start getting into a flow state and just get it done. Just get it done. Just mm. wake up and write. And he he talks about it. Uh, Seth Godin is a huge fan. Tim Ferriss is a big fan. And uh, yeah, it's, it's great advice. Obviously, you might not find as much value out of it because it sounds like you have cut the distractions out of your life and, and gone, uh, gone after that and, and figured that out on your own. But if anybody needs help just having that quiet time to sit down and do it, he, he puts it just in such a, such a really awesome way. I just, I just mm -hmm. really have enjoyed it. And Colin, I had, had a question for you. Have you found that your ability to articulate in the English language has gotten better now that you're such a prolific writer and that you have so much, uh, so much practice? Do you feel like you can express yourself better verbally as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think actually the combination of writing, writing short form, writing long form, speaking to audiences, speaking into a camera for YouTube videos, and then speaking into a microphone for interviews and for podcasts uh, of my own, that those are all very different types of speaking. Uh, like even writing short form in terms of like Twitter or writing responses to emails, all of these different things have different rhythms to them and they have different like vocabulary that you want to use. And uh, that to me, having that range to choose from is almost like a musician picking up different instruments or, or maybe even just different versions of the same instrument, different size pianos, and then moving on to the keyboard and so on. And, and the more you can expose yourself to words and the more you can use words and the more you can use language and in more settings, I think the better off you are because it, it is just training. It's like an athlete going out and, you know, running every day or something like that. You know, sometimes you're sprinting, sometimes you're doing marathons, but uh, it all adds up to the same type of, I guess, verbal fitness that, that you're trying to aim for. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's about conditioning yourself. And in certain circumstances, I feel very conditioned to be able to express myself. And in other places, I realize that I'm lacking. And I, again, notice the fluctuations of my own mind. And when I'm really busy or a little bit distracted, as people might have heard at the beginning of the podcast, well, <laughs> I was a little bit all over the place in the beginning. And I think that I've made a pretty decent recovery. And I've told this to people on the podcast before, but I'm a big product. I feel it within myself, a big product of who I'm surrounding myself with and how they speak and how they mm. articulate themselves, well, that rubs off on me in just 40 minutes of talking to Colin. Now I can feel like we've gotten in a rhythm in the, in the conversation a little bit more and I'm able to, you know, uh, mirror you a little bit better and you seem to be very calm and very grounded and you know you you talk to a friend right or you think of someone chit-chatting and people go back and forth like da 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 and the conversation has that rhythm to it but now i now i feel like we're in a pretty good rhythm i had a, a buddy who we discussed meditation in depth about and this is a guy who regularly sits in 10-day meditation retreats and doesn't speak to anybody but he mm. just seems so calm the whole time, and it has such a calming effect on the other person. So, Colin, with all of that, I wanted to say thank you because I appreciate the rhythm at which you speak and you express yourself. And I can imagine, although I've not listened to your podcast, uh, the topics that you cover sound very, very interesting and like it could be on, on NPR or something. It, it sounds like the name <laughs> of your podcast is Let's Know Things. I don't know if that would, if you were complimented by me putting in that NPR, but you should be. That was meant as a good thing. Oh, good. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I have such a blast with the podcast and it, it is a whole lot of, I, I did have a few people calling me out for saying I, I was trying to copy an NPR voice when I first started, but it's oh, just, it's kind, it's kind of how I talk. <laughs> I sure. sound a certain way and using a particular microphone and so on. And then it's just me talking into a microphone. There's not a lot of, there's no sound effects or anything like that. No, I don't do guests or anything along those lines. So it's a very chilled out rhythmic exploration of the news on a deeper level than we typically get the chance to engage with. So I'm, I'm having a blast with it, but it's also, it's a blast coming on here and chatting with you for a bit. No, that's awesome. I'm going to have a blast starting to, to pick up some of your episodes. I wanted to pick your brain on a topic that is very near and dear to both of our hearts. That's the expression that I was trying to get uh, get to earlier when I said we both shared <laughs> Iceland, but I really, my English has gotten progressively worse as I speak Spanish more and more, and I can speak some French, and then you throw in a third language, and that's very difficult. And also, I speak to a lot of non native English speakers and then you yeah. pick up their habits. And... Oh, I, I love non-native English though. Like I, I've stolen brazenly so many words from my non-native English speaking friends because they use the language kind of like somebody who's never encountered a certain technology or something that you're familiar with and they use it in new and interesting ways. And just, uh, there's a, a particular turn of phrase that my friends in Iceland were using that, uh, can't be bothered to, and it's, it's kind of a Britishism <laughs> in a way, but the idea of saying that you can't be bothered to do something says so much more than any of the ways that I would have said that before. And now I've brazenly stolen that along with a bunch of other phrases and words that have been like hacked together by people who don't know that they're doing it incorrectly. And as a result are coming up with something that's much cooler. No, I, I completely agree. I do the reverse translation a lot. The first thing that comes up into my head is what I would go to say in Spanish, especially a lot of colloquial things that I would say regularly. And then I just 
make my it just makes my English so awkward. Uh, I won't give any examples, but two actually <laughs> that I picked up from you. I, I I was laughing. I almost interrupted you to make the joke. Was you said you're flat in Wichita, Kansas, and I was cracking up because if you went to Wichita, somebody in Wichita, Kansas, I'm sorry, but if you said my flat, they would probably just burst out laughing and say, "What the yeah, fuck is a I just flat?" <laughs> hadn't noticed that I used that, but that that to me is another incredibly useful term because a flat can be a lot of things. It's not necessarily what you would think of as an apartment. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess that makes sense. And then the other one that you used was, uh, you used the expression and you used it twice, play house. And I said, what is this dude? 60? <laughs> you were playing house <laughs> with your girlfriend. <laughs> I was like, because I heard a, a Canadian guy use it recently about his oh, Costa Rican oh. girlfriend. And I was like, oh, play house. That's funny. That's, you know, he was probably in his sixties. I was like, that's oh, something my, my parents would say. So I, I'm I, sure I do that all the time. I know that I started using the word keen after I lived in New Zealand. Cause everybody says, are you keen to do this? Are you keen to do that? And I think keen is just such a better way to say it, compared to what I was using before. And, and so I, yeah, it, English is such a great language for this though, because it is really a mutt language and there's no true correct way to speak it. And that means that anyone, particularly people like me who just like love the hell out of language and the usage of it, it's such a fun space to play in because when you're writing then too, no one can tell you you're wrong. Like you can be wrong according to certain like journalistic or MFA standards, but you can't be completely wrong because it's a language that we break and rebuild and reshape all the time. And that's why it's such a useful international language to a certain degree, because every different culture adopts it and puts their own spin on it. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, uh, I just thought of something funny. A buddy of mine once said, uh, a college buddy of mine who, after I started spending a lot of time outside of the United States, he said, if you start to sign your emails, cheers, I'm going to punch you in the face. That's oh, sure. what he said. And, and I do anyway because it's fucking great because it means whatever you want it to mean. It can mean, yep. it, it means thank you, but it also means like, Cheers, Have a good day. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's like, nice talking to you. I'm out. Peace. You know what I mean? Which actually in Costa Rica now I will use a Spanish expression, but pura vida, me, it doesn't, it, yes, it, it translates to pure life, which means mm -hmm. nothing at, at all. Like, why would you say that? That's not even relevant to what we're talking about, but they use it as thank you. They use it as hello. We can use it as uh, you're welcome, which is which is almost most common. How are you? You can answer pura vida, which is I mean, it's just it really is just a great expression. Uh, nice but Swiss yeah, Army knife term. Exactly. You could just say whatever, and it's positive, and you're you're physically impr imprinting that life is pure into your brain. So I love Costa Rica for that reason. Where I was going with the whole, before we got into the language and the use of English, I was gonna ask you about tourism. And we have both traveled extensively. You have a podcast episode in Let's Know Things about tourism. I've not had a chance to listen to it, but I would love to know what your stance is and what you talk about there. It's, it's interesting, it's something, a couple of my most recent public speaking gigs actually have been on the subject of tourism uh, because it is something that has a lot of positives and negatives for an area. It's something that, like in the case of New Zealand, for instance, because they were able to do so well for so many years with their tourism, it was easier for them to get the political wherewithal to turn away people who wanted to essentially dig up their mountains for gold. Uh, or, or the way that they were presenting it at the time was saying, we want to prospect and see what the value of the gold would be. We don't want to do any digging yet. We just want to see, you know, what the, the numerical value of our mountains are, um, which is another way of saying, yes, we want to build a path to digging up our mountains. And so in a lot of ways, a lot of countries have that benefit and that they're able to bring people in and show them something of their country and earn money that way rather than digging up commodities and destroying permanently something that they can't get back. On the other hand, um, 
And this is something that I saw in Iceland. I usually use Iceland as an example for this because I, I was living in, in downtown Reykjavik the couple of times that I've lived there. And something that you see and something that I saw more and more every year was that although you could step outside your home or your hostel, as it might be, in downtown Reykjavik and find like seven different places to get a plastic Viking helmet or a giant stuffed puffin, you can't buy a light bulb anymore. And yeah. that's because like... All of the little shops for the locals have been pushed to the outskirts of town and pushed to the, the – they hate it when you call them suburbs, but they're essentially suburbs. Uh, and so that's the side effect then of tourism is that you run the risk of, one, making the city less – uh, valuable and less welcoming for locals. But it's also, it runs the risk then of becoming like a theme park version of whatever it was. Like Iceland is, it runs a substantial risk because of their great success as a tourist destination of becoming an Iceland themed theme park where they, you know, not many people in Iceland actually believe in elves, but they use it as promotional material because it's like a fun gimmicky folksy type of thing. A lot of locals hate that. They hate that people think that they believe in elves because it's so irrational, but it is something that is in a lot of the promotional media. And so the, the downside then is that you have the, the chance, you run the real risk of killing what made the place cool and interesting to begin with and making it a place that locals don't actually believe in anymore. And it's, it's not like a, a foregone conclusion. That's not necessarily what happens, but it's happened in so many places. You go to like Khao San Road in Thailand, that's not a that's not visiting Thailand. That's visiting a frat party. Like it's there's places like that that you can point at and see the real horrible downside of tourism taken too far. Um, but I am optimistic and very bullish on this because of things that have allowed for different types of tours and that allow the locals to own the infrastructure, things like Airbnb and such, um, and, and different services. I think Airbnb now has a tourism service, but like the local tourist guides now have abilities to give tours as well. Things like that are really heartening to me because it allows the locals to actually put their own spin and show what they actually care about about their town rather than a branding agency coming in and, uh, you know, turning it into a theme park. Exactly. And uh, of course, uh, this goes without saying, but Under 30 Experiences tries to partner with those locals who want to show off their country and they want to do it in a sustainable way and they don't want to bring you to Disneyland and <laughs> they want to show you the real uh, whether it's Costa Rica or the real Iceland or, or wherever you go, but uh, actually in my own hometown, and it's not my hometown, it's next to the town where I grew up, uh, but of course now that it's cool, I claim it as my hometown because that's where I go and hang out when I go home to, I usually say Poughkeepsie, but it's Beacon, New York, just a, a train stop uh, closer to New York City. Poughkeepsie is the, the end of the line, but Beacon, New York, beautiful in the Hudson, Hudson Valley, uh, on the Hudson River, beautiful mountains, right? But when I was growing up, it was ghetto. I mean, it was just not a place that you wanted to go. You didn't walk down Main Street. It was mainly boarded up. But now it's turned into a super crunchy Woodstock type place. <laughs> and it, it's, the, it's the Brooklyn, uh, it, it's the new Brooklyn, you know, where you can still buy a house for two hundred and fifty or three hundred thousand dollars and settle mm. your family up there and still have easy access to the city. But all of my friends now complain that all right, we don't need another brewery or a taco spot or a <laughs> you know whatever other crap that they sell to, to tourists who just come on the weekends uh, up there, right? They're like, we don't have a hardware store. The pharmacy yeah. can barely pay rent and we have to go outside. And then it makes, you know, they're trying to, uh, the re-urbanization plan, I guess you would call it, is to make it into a nice walking city and attract young families. And But wait a second, you have like a crystal shop on Main Street who's only open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Why is there a crystal shop in town and there's no there and there's nothing we need and now we all have to get in our cars 
and go to the outskirts of town and go where there still are strip malls and plazas and fight with each other in the parking lots and you know it just creates uh, traffic and pollution and now you're back to suburbia so i totally very different yeah different facets of livability right because on one hand like you don't necessarily want to live around a bunch of strip malls like they they aren't they don't feel great and it's a it's a certain type of, of capitalism that has not kind of shown itself to be super sustainable but on the other hand the flip side of that a, a place where you can actually live is kind of like the gentrification model where then everything is a super high-end super artisanal this and that and so you can't just get a light bulb like you have to get you know a handcrafted locally sourced light bulb that costs 37 dollars uh seeing those two models then uh are those seem to be the only paths that are pitched to us as a contrast to the idea of being a tourist destination. But I think ideally we find something a little bit in between. I just haven't seen it done very many places. I, I agree. I, I interviewed the guys uh, from Blue Zones who went all over the world and studied the people who were living the longest, but then also they found what the common factors in their communities were and they talked about oh place where you have nice neighbors walkability uh, a strong social community access to food etc and they put together actual actual guidelines uh, so yeah i would suggest uh, anybody who's interested in improving their own communities, checking out Blue Zones, uh, it's called. It's a it's a really good, really good book and, and online resource. Uh, man, Colin, this is this has been fun. Oh, I had one more. Sorry, I had one more Wichita, Kansas joke <laughs> for you. They just never get old. But I told my mom this the other day. We were cracking. I was cracking up. Um, but you talked about plazas and strip malls, and I just uh. couldn't. I just couldn't take it there in, in Kansas. And, uh, the, oh, gee, and actually, the downtown has a little strip. You have to have street parking, of course, and, and parking lots. But uh, that aside, I went and I asked the nice people in the family of the young lady I was dating. And this was quite some time ago. But I said, oh, they said, well, where would you like to go to dinner when I met them? And I said, oh, well, I, I'd love to go to some, some local place. Show me a real flavor of, of Kansas, would you please? It would, be, uh, it would be an honor. You know where they brought me? Olive Garden. Uh-huh. Olive I figured that for Applebee's. Oh, I knew it had to be God. one or the other. I yeah. proudly can say, and not just because <laughs> I don't eat gluten, but I have not been back to an Olive Garden since. I'm no, surprised they didn't take you to uh, Stangles, which is like the little local, it, as far as I know, it's only in Wichita. Maybe it is elsewhere, but it's like a local um, fast food restaurant, essentially, that they're everywhere here. Dude, that, that sounds awesome. I would even go to that get to get it. I did go to the <laughs> Kansas State Fair, and I really shouldn't just keep dogging on, on Kansas here. I apologize to anybody <laughs> listening, but... I went, we, I just saw <sighs> the most obese people at the Kansas State Fair, but I'm, and I'm not generalizing. I'm saying I saw certain individuals. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was a, it was a heavier, heavier set group, no pun intended, than I was normally used to seeing. But I saw a guy get in a fight, and he was probably close to 400 pounds, get in a fight with someone, and he said somebody denied him his tickets to the whatever and he said i have been saving in a special savings account for over a year to come and enjoy my week at the kansas state fair he said i have been disrespected and he went i don't know what he was talking about but when i heard that i thought Oh my God. And that, you know what? That's a cultural thing, and that's great. And I enjoyed my time for the things that I saw at the Kansas State Fair, but I was absolutely blown away that we were in the same country. Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of what you see here seems to be the consequence of uh, 
politically, like it's a, it's it's a much bigger topic than could be easily covered here, but basically the people in charge were able to set up a situation in which they could get essentially anything they want wanted passed without too much debate. And so they aspired to set up a uh, essentially like a conservative values utopia. And they did this uh, five or six years ago. And the consequences of it were just dystopic to the point where people have really terrible health care if they have health care. And people are paid very little relative to what they should be making. The the only people who flourish under the system here in Kansas, uh, just by the the social system that's set up, are the corporations. And and that's why here in Wichita, you know, you've got a, a bunch of military contractors and you've got the coke industries and things like that, because. Kansas is a great place for corporations, but not a great place for people who are middle income or less on the the economic scale. God damn! When you said the only, the only thing that it would be good for, I thought for sure you were going to say the Koch brothers, but you went on to mention <laughs> them. Yeah, yeah. It seems like half the city works for Coke Industries. Sure, sure. And this is not co- the this is not Coca Cola that you're speaking of. This is uh, no, oil no. oil tycoons. Is that correct? Uh, among other things, yeah, they're the the Citizens United people. They're they're very big in politics and very they've they've probably put in office every conservative politician you've ever heard of in modern politics. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Well, Colin, this has been a blast. Uh, I I just appreciate you having on the show, hearing interesting things that you have to say. I know we skipped all over the place, but. Uh, yeah, this has been this has been really cool. Your podcast is called Let's Know Things. Your blog is Exile Lifestyle. Where can people find more out about you if they want to hear more? Yeah, th- those two places are a good place to start. Uh, all my books are at colin.io. And then I'm pretty much everywhere on the internet, Instagram, Twitter, even Snapchat and things like that. At Colin is my name. So people can see what I'm up to, see what type of stuff I'm reading and sharing, or just say hello if they'd care to. You heard it here first, folks. Colin is <laughs> everywhere. You're the man, Colin. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks again for having me, man. Great talking to you. Yo, Live Different Podcast listeners, you know what to do. You love the episode if you listened this far. Go to iTunes. Show us some love. Please, that's all we ask, a little five-star review. Just a little review. That's all we need. Send it to a friend who needs to get their ass in gear. We're trying to do good work here, and we need your help. Hey, you know what? Special offer. Send me an email personally. I will write back. Matt at under30experiences.com. I want to know your feedback, and then I want to meet you in person. Maybe our yoga retreat, maybe our fitness retreat, who knows? Check out under30experiences.com. Go do something awesome with your life.